Wow. Thanksgiving 2006. I have to admit it's a little humbling to step into this pulpit following Brendan Manning and Oz Guinness and Isaac Canales. Thanks for that, Roger. I hope you've enjoyed these speakers that we've had. I know that I have. And today you get me. I'm going to ask you... <laughs> I'm going to ask you if you would uh, take out your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and would you stand for the reading of God's Word? If you're looking for the page in the Pew Bible, it's page 939, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 7 through 12, and then skipping down to verse 15. But we have this treasure in clay jars, so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And skipping down to verse 15. Yes, everything is for your sake, so that grace, as it extends to more and more people, may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. This is the word of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we've just read together never will. You can have a seat. In all the questions that we can ask each other about Thanksgiving, did you have a good Thanksgiving? Was the airport busy? Were you stuck on the 405? To me, there's one question that seems conspicuously absent. The question, are you grateful? Are we truly a grateful people? Reminds me of a story I heard about two young men walking along a country road. One of them thought he remembered a shortcut, so he convinced his pal to hop over a fence and take off across country. Well, it didn't take long before they realized they weren't alone seems there was a bull in that field, and as this bull came racing toward them with fire in his eyes, these two took off for dear life. As they were running, the one hollered out to the other, say a prayer for us. I don't know any prayers. Oh, come on, you grew up in a family that prayed only before dinner. Just say a prayer for us. And with that, this man bowed his head and said, dear God, for that which we are about to receive, make us truly grateful. Make us truly grateful. As this Thanksgiving already starts to fade into memory, I wonder what likeness we have with Paul, who wrote, I have learned to be content in all circumstances. Or can we make his words our own when he wrote, In hardship, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, and peril, we are more than conquerors. Do we have any idea 
what it was like to have the kind of gratitude that Paul had when he wrote these letters. Do we hear his words, hear him use the word thanksgiving, and subconsciously, do we substitute something less than what he actually meant by thanksgiving? Can we know the same meaning of thanksgiving that Paul knew? With that as our question, it's necessary for us to go look at this word, thanksgiving itself, and of course, for what it meant to Paul. And that means going to the Greek. Now, going to the Greek is never easy for me. I am not a good Greek student. I couldn't remember the word for Thanksgiving from a vocabulary list to save my life. So I had to hunt and poke around in all of these books to find the Greek word for Thanksgiving. But when I did, I had one of those aha moments, the kind that we all hope for when we study the Word of God. You see, what I found is that there are three words that share the same root. The root is care. It's C-alpha-rho, for any of you that were sober enough to remember your Greek alphabet from your fraternities and sororities. C-alpha-rho spells care. From that, we get kara, the Greek word for joy. Charis, the Greek word for grace. And eucharistia, the Greek word for thanksgiving. Eucharistia is the Greek word for thanksgiving. Now, does that ring a bell with anyone? As in the Eucharist? I don't know why, but for some reason, that just never struck me before. At least, it didn't strike me the same way it did this time, as I was looking at this passage through our concept of thanksgiving. Of course, we know the Eucharist is just another name for the Lord's Supper. So how is it that the Lord's Supper can also be a Thanksgiving meal. You see, the Lord's Last Supper, where he took the bread and the wine and imbued it with the significance of his body and his blood, that was also the Passover meal. The Passover meal, as we know, was a feast dedicated to proclaim, remember, and give thanks for what God had done in the midst of his people, for what this miracle-working, bondage-breaking, promise-making God had done. Centuries later, as Jesus took the bread and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body, which is for you, and took the wine and said, this cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins, what Jesus was saying to his disciples then and continues to say to us now, give thanks for what this God is doing in your midst. In my body and my blood, I lift you out of the clutches of death forever. I remove your sins from you. Nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. And so you see, the Eucharist really is our thanksgiving for what God has done in our midst. The revelation of God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to that word one more time. Eucharistia. Can you hear it? Grace in the heart of thanksgiving. Another dimension of meaning was added to the Hebrew word for thanksgiving 
in those early years that God shaped the young nation of Israel. As the years went by and he planted his people in the promised land, he lifted up a king in their midst, King David, who was a man who ruled after God's own heart. The Hebrew idea of giving thanks, celebrated at the Passover meal, became linked to another very deep place of gratitude, gratitude for their king. You see, in David, the Israeli people saw not just a leader who secured peace for them on every side, who ushered in a golden age of prosperity, but they found a man who somehow miraculously lifted his people closer to their God. He seemed to navigate a place between heaven and earth, ordained to sit on an eternal throne. David was one who exemplified what it looked like when God's love, his favor, and his wrath was poured out on one man. In him, subject to him, the people were brought up through him and made closer to God, and so they gave thanks for this king. Some 400 years later, after the Babylonians carried off the leaders of Israel into exile, the remembrance of this king became the heart of their hope and yearning for their Messiah. The prophets told them of a king who would come to them again. Now, at first, I thought this mention of an Israeli king who ruled in 1000 BC might be a little too far away, a little too obscure for us to find relevance with today. But then, completely coincidentally, I went and saw the movie Bobby the day after Thanksgiving. Bobby is a day in the life of many people whom we come to meet in the Ambassador Hotel on the day that Bobby Kennedy was killed in 1968. Lawrence Fishburne plays a chef in the kitchen of that hotel, and there's a scene between Fishburne and a young Latino busboy where he's trying to tell this young man that he sees a kernel of greatness in him. Impetuously, Fishburne grabs a pen and writes on the wall the words, the once and future king, and explains that it's a reference to King Arthur, a reference that the busboy knows. By the end of the film, these words are splattered with the blood of Bobby Kennedy. And in that graphic image, I realized that we in America may not be all that different from those Babylonian exiles all those years ago. I think that we still long for a king. I think that we know that there is one who comes to us. You see, I believe this undaunted hope that we have in a leader who is strong and compassionate and filled with integrity, I believe that hope is anchored in our heritage in King David. And that which draws us toward the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. You see, we know this king. We follow this leader. The one who is the source of all thanksgiving. And now you can see how joy starts to explode out of this trinity of words. Joy for God's grace. Joy for a coming king. Joy is part of thanksgiving. 
The ancient Greek philosopher Philo believed that joy was an attribute that belonged only to God. That if a mortal was experiencing joy, then it was a gift. It wasn't anything that a mortal could help create or contribute to. And that's why in the Greek worldview, joy is not subject to circumstance or fate. It is thought of as eternal and not affected by this realm. Joy, just like grace, is a gift from God. So with thanksgiving literally composed of grace and joy, why is it then that so many of the New Testament writers speak of thanksgiving in the context of suffering? James writes, Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of any kind. And Peter, in his first letter, writes, In this you rejoice, even if now, for a little while, you will have to suffer various trials. Of all the times the word thanksgiving appears in the New Testament, however, nearly half of those times come from Paul's writings. Now we need to remember that Paul knew only the risen and glorified Christ. He never met the earthly Jesus. And so you would think that it would be this triumphant Christ that, that Paul would know best. But it's not. Time and time again, Paul finds that his true kinship with Jesus, his real union with the Lord, is forged in suffering. In suffering, Paul doesn't find outrage and despair. He finds real thanksgiving, real joy. He's learned that he has a share in what the Lord suffered and why. For others. There are many times that Paul refers to joy and thanksgiving in the midst of suffering, but it's here in this second letter to, to the Corinthians that Paul reveals the nature of this strange communion between suffering and thanksgiving. Paul founded the church in Corinth, as he had many other churches. And after loving these Corinthians, discipling them, growing the church, he left them to go on with his journey. Between his first letter and the second letter to the Corinthians, it's clear that something has changed. And what that change is, is that a new group of teachers have taken up residence in Corinth a group that Paul calls peddlers of the word and super apostles. You see, by now, most people in Corinth, certainly everyone in the church, had heard about Paul's journeys. They had heard that as he entered a town, if he wasn't beaten, he was jailed. If he wasn't jailed, he was stoned. That the gist of what was happening to him was insult and abuse. And so these super apostles start to plant seeds of doubt in the minds of the Corinthian church. Look at him, they say. What a joke. I mean, he's beaten and taunted and given to fits of despair on a regular basis. It certainly seems that God has abandoned Paul, and maybe you should think about it too. He's weak. Now look at us. We are strong. We receive nothing but blessing. Clearly God is for us and against Paul. How can God's power be revealed in his weakness? How can God's power be revealed 
in weakness. To this question, to this accusation, Paul writes these words. We have this treasure in jars of clay. What treasure? The incomparable knowledge of knowing that God has been fully revealed in Jesus Christ, that he is alive and for us. What jars of clay? Us. Our fragile and easily broken bodies and spirits. Paul writes, we are afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. Why? Why does God allow all of these things to happen to Paul? Verse 15 tells us, all of this is for your sake. So that grace, as it extends to more and more people, may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. As more people see and hear what is happening to Paul and hear that his faith is not only not destroyed, but made stronger, that he trusts in the Lord all the more, well, it gives witness to the truth of the gospel. People are saved, and the glory of God is radiant. When we notice the power and blessing and riches of someone who believes that that power and wealth was made all on his own, well, that doesn't cause us to give glory to God. It causes us to be awestruck by that person. Paul says that when a servant of God is afflicted, is crushed, is struck down, and still stands up to give thanks and praise to his God, something unearthly happens. The curtain is pulled back, and we can see the face of God. You see, anyone can give thanks when things are great. It doesn't take a person of faith to lift up his eyes to the ceiling and say thanks when he's sitting on a pile of money and well-being. It does take a person of faith to know that joy is not linked to circumstance, that grace is eternal. Get giving thanks to what God has done is a choice that God offers us daily. My mom told me a story when I was a kid. She said it was true, but I'm not sure. It's the story about a small town nestled in an isolated spot in the mountains and the people of that town. These people were characterized by their attitude of gratitude toward God. They were an industrious people. They enjoyed what their money could buy. Now, there was a hermit who lived near this town, and he hated these people. He hated them for their joy and the way they celebrated what they had, and so he devised a plan to take away everything from them, to take away their reason from giving thanks. And so one night as they all slept, he stole into their homes. He took everything that he could carry from them. As the sun broke, exhausted from his night of crime, yet safely away from the town, he stopped to listen. He was hungry to hear their cry of outrage, of resentment, of pain and misery. But as the sun crept over the mountains, what he heard wasn't a cry of pain. It was a song of praise. Praise for what could never be taken from them. 
God's grace in Jesus Christ. And as the story goes, as the Who's in Whoville sang their praise that Christmas morn, the Grinch's heart grew three sizes that day. It'd be a lovely fable if there weren't stories of our own that are all too near and all too dear. When Charles Roberts walked into an Amish school earlier this year and killed five girls, the world stood in wonder as the Amish walked to Roberts' home to pray for the widow and orphans of the man who had just killed their children. In that quiet place of surrender, in lives that are defined by their faith, the Amish caused a hush to fall. And the world stood in awe as God's glory was revealed in their forgiveness. When Tracy comes into our midst and through her pain finds words to express gratitude, when she is able to give testimony to a love that is beyond comprehension, she becomes more than a woman who has suffered great loss. She becomes a vessel, a clay jar, in which the treasure of God is revealed. It was a, a producer that Tracy and David and I all used to work for who first told me about Max. She's a wonderful Jewish woman, and she told me about going to visit them in the hospital. As she walked into the room where Max was, she saw David, Tracy's husband, sound asleep with a Bible open across his lap. And in telling me this, she said, you could tell where their strength came from. That's a picture that she carried away. And I guarantee you, the way David and Tracy and their children lived out these circumstances is an indelible picture on the minds and hearts of doctors and nurses and other families and countless others who watched this time of suffering. Paul never tried to hide from those with whom he shared the gospel that he indeed endured many trials. Those who opposed Paul wanted these hardships to invalidate his ministry. They wanted these to be seen as a sign of disgrace and judgment. Likewise, the evil one wants to invalidate our ministries and our lives. He points out our areas in which we suffer, and he wants us to question the goodness of God. He wants to steal the glory that alone belongs to the Holy One. He wants defeat and weakness to be final words, words that bring our joy and our hope to an end. He certainly wants us to look at the pierced and bleeding body of Jesus nailed to a cross and see only shame and abandonment. But the King of Ages says, don't turn away now. What you behold as weakness ushers in my power. What looks like shame is actually eternal glory. What you think is death lasts only a moment before the resurrection and the life. I know that some of you here today 
are suffering and have suffered severe trials. And it is my hope that like Paul, you have felt the power of God lifting you, holding you, revealing in you his power, his treasure. I pray that his presence is the source of your thanksgiving. I also know that there are some of you here in this sanctuary today who consider your lives in the luxury of Southern California and you actually feel guilty that you have any kinship with Paul. As you compare your trials against the horrors of Iraq, Darfur, homelessness, helplessness, AIDS, you tell yourself that your trials are small and of little consequence. You decide that you don't know this side of Paul and that you would never dream of sharing in the sufferings of our Lord. And while I don't want to make mountains out of molehills or find martyrdom in a bad day, I do want to speak to those of you who believe I'm speaking to you now. I want to tell you that Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is the kind of God who knows that to a shepherd, one lost sheep is a tragedy. But to a widow, one lost penny is enough to cause her to stay up all night in anxiety. These things are not trivial to him. They matter to you, and you matter to him. Yes, Paul can stand in a place of great tribulation and express his gratitude to God. And you, too, can stand in loneliness, depression, financial woes, whatever it might be that you think is small, you can stand in that place and still point to his greatness. I keep a post-it note on my desk. I've written out 2 Corinthians 12, 9 that says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. I don't know about you, but I'm aware of my weakness almost all the time. I'm aware that in this town the odds are stacked against me, and sometimes I feel so crushed that I can hardly breathe. And that's why I need a post-it that reminds me that in my weakness, God will find a way to be glorified. And His glory will not only be the source of my thanksgiving, but will be the possibility of someone else seeing Jesus in me. They won't mistake my power because I have none. They'll see only His strength. If Charles Spurgeon, who was considered to be the Prince of Pe Preachers, had been alive today, he might also have a handwritten post-it on his desk. But as it was in the mid-1800s when he was alive in the room where he worked, he had a plaque with a verse from Isaiah on it. Isaiah 48.10, which reads, I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. With this before him, he wrote, it is no mean thing to be chosen of God. God's choice makes chosen people choice people. We are chosen not in the palace, but in the furnace. In the furnace, beauty is marred. 
fashion is destroyed. Strength is melted. Glory is consumed. Yet here, eternal love reveals its secrets and declares its choice. My friends, it is that choice. Our chosenness in the one who suffered, in the one who is glorified, that is the source of our thanksgiving. Would you pray with me? God, we do thank you and praise your name that we have such riches in Jesus Christ that no matter what you set before us, whether it is bounty or hardly anything, whether it is joy or great suffering, that you take everything that composes our lives and bring it to your throne. God, we give you thanks that we serve such a God as you. We give you our praise and our thanksgiving. In Jesus Christ, amen.